This is a special weekend. It's a special weekend for a number of reasons. It's a special weekend because this church has chosen to set aside over the course of three days a special series of gospel meetings where we can look into the scriptures and see if there are things that we can learn to do better, things that we can learn to improve on, things, as our brother said at the outset today, we can use in teaching others in a more effective way. This is also a special weekend because it's an opportunity for us to get to know each other. And I'm looking forward to that very much. The few people that I have met, if they are a testimony to the majority, this is indeed a friendly, outgoing, wonderful group of the Lord's people. And you are to be commended for that in advance. And thirdly, to those of you who are fathers, to those of us who play that role, this is a special weekend for us where the world chooses to give us some honor and some thanksgiving. And you know what's true when it comes to parents is you want to do what you can do to try to please them, to make them proud of you, to make them boast about you. And there are things that we know growing up that you could do to push your parents' buttons that would make them unhappy. And we would want to avoid that at all costs. And from a spiritual point of view, when it comes to our spiritual parent, when it comes to our Father in heaven... There are things that you and I can do that please him, that cause him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That great epitaph that we want upon our own tombstones at the end of this life. But let us be honest with ourselves that as the song that we have sang, there are words that we can use and things that we can do that displease our God and cause him to be sorrowful, that make God sad. I'll talk more about that phrase here in just a moment as you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I want to thank you so much for the invitation to be with you. I'll share some more personal comments, Lord willing, on Sunday. But I want to get right into the text tonight in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 30. This is, I believe, one of the most practical, pragmatic, to-the-point texts about what it means to please God and avoiding the kinds of things that would displease God. And I think if we were to take a show of hands tonight, that everyone would agree we are here tonight because we love God, because we care about God, and we want to worship our God. And consequently, we want to do everything we can within our power to stand before him in a position where he says, I'm pleased with what you have done. None of us are going to make it to heaven because of the great works that we have done. That is true. It is by God's grace that we are saved. Paul wrote in this same epistle to the church at Ephesus. But the fact of the matter is, is by that grace, we will stand before God and we will be able to hopefully say, I worked hard in my life in spite of my errors to prevent your sorrow. Because I do not want to make you upset. Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away a line, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. 
Verse 29, we'll come back and deal with verse 29 in great detail in a few moments. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And the verse from which we're gaining our topic tonight, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We need to acknowledge that we can, by our actions, make God sorrowful. And usually, when we think about what it takes to make God sorrowful, we think about those who are not Christians failing to become Christians, and consequently, that bringing displeasure to God. And certainly, there's truth in that. But might I suggest that Paul here is not writing to non-Christians, to people in the world, but he is writing to Christians who themselves need to be instructed about what it means to be righteous and what it takes in order to please our God. And he says it is indeed possible that we could grieve the Holy Spirit. That term, grieve the Holy Spirit, I looked that up years ago because I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I know what it means to grieve, and I know what it means to grieve someone else. But what does that mean here in this particular context? And it literally means to make sad. And I love that because even a five-year-old understands what it means to make someone sad. You might say, you made me mommy, or you made me daddy. Very sad by your choices today. And a five-year-old can get that and understand that. And so this is not a, a difficult topic to get. There are things that you and I can do that make God sad. And we want to do everything we can to pull out all the stops to say, I don't want to do those things. I want to do what God asks me to do. And I think that Ephesians chapter 4 is the perfect text to understand this from. And so what I want us to do tonight is to look at four very practical things that come directly from the text here. You can read the text yourself, and I am confident that you are good enough Bible students that you are familiar with this particular text. But Paul is trying to help these saints to do these four things to prevent God's sorrow that are still for us to do today. I want to spend just a few moments on each of those four things This evening, I want to start with this. Just be truthful. Tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. And we want to be people who share truthful communication with others. I think by and large, we all agree on that because, yes, we are not to be liars. We are to put away lying, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But I want to go back to an Old Testament text. I want to go back to a book that I was talking about at lunch today. I want to go all the way back to the book of Zechariah and look very quickly there. Now, the book of Zechariah is a portion of scriptures that sometimes we call it flyover country. We just fly over it to get to the more important stuff. But as we talk this morning, this morning at lunch, this afternoon at lunch, this is a text that is just as important today as it was 24, 25, 26, 2700 years ago. And in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8, read with me, beginning in verse 16. These are the things you shall do, God says to the people ancient of old. He says, I want you to speak each man the truth to his neighbor. You know, it's a shame that that has to be a command from God. Speak the truth to your neighbor. That ought to be automatic. 
But we need to be reminded to be truthful people. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath. For all of these things, God says, I hate. God hates untruthful communication. Going back to our text tonight in Ephesians chapter 4, we read where we are to put away dishonesty. We are to put it away. Have you ever thought about what it means to put it away? I hadn't really thought about that except a couple years ago. I was thinking about this particular passage. Okay, put away dishonesty. Why didn't Paul just say, be honest or don't be dishonest? He says, put away dishonesty. And I thought about that for a moment. And I thought about it from this particular perspective, looking at two things. One is we need to acknowledge that God is honest at his very core in who he is. And so if we're going to be godly like God, and that's been one of the themes that I've been working on personally in my in my life as a Christian and in preaching is the idea of trying to be more like God. Because that's what we're trying to do. I think we're reluctant to say that because we fear that we come across as pompous or self-centered. Hey, look at me. I'm trying to be like God. But isn't it true that we're trying to have the attributes of our father? Isn't it true that when we look in the spiritual mirror that we are to see God looking back at us? And us, as we grow older, we look more like our spiritual parent. So the fact is, is God is honest and we have to be honest. But I love this particular point here because this really helps me that if lying is left out and not put away, we're going to see it and be attracted to it. So think about all the things that God says, put away, put away the foreign idols, put away idolatry, put away dishonesty here in this particular text. It's as if. We have a room in our house where you shove things that you don't want anyone else to see. If you've ever sold your house and lived in a staged house, you know what I mean. When you have a place for everything and everything a place, but that's just a dream world. And so what you do is you have a closet that you shove everything into when people are coming over to view the house to think about purchasing it. And it may be a complete mess inside, but at least it is put away and no one sees it. And by not seeing it, you are not attracted to it. Putting away lying is putting it into the closet saying that's junk. I don't want anyone else to see it, including me. That way I'm not attracted to it anymore. I don't notice it anymore. So I love the notion of putting away lying because we're supposed to put it away. And not get it back out again. It's no longer that which can attract me, bother me, or tempt me. That is universally true with every aspect of anything that is a temptation to us. Put it away and don't get it back out again. The general rule is this. As Paul says, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And I love that Paul uses this analogy almost in every epistle that he writes. He loves coming back to the notion that we are a body made up of many members. And every member has its own particular functionality, but yet it's for the benefit of the whole. 
And so that being said, we need to acknowledge that the physical body is honest with itself. So should the spiritual body be honest with itself. You know, when you stub your toe, every part of your body is affected. When you have a headache, you don't have a foot ache, but you might as well. Because your whole body is going to react to that one member suffering. There's so much that we could say about that. And there are so many studies that we could engage in about that. But I want us to acknowledge that Christians need to be open, need to be honest, and communicate about our pains. When he says, we are members of one another and speak the truth with his neighbor, this is not just do not lie. It is also use one another so that you can truthfully communicate with each other so that you can benefit each other. We sometimes say, and rightly so, that there's no such thing as a pain or a concern or an issue that is too small for God. God knows about everything and he cares about everything. There is not a single need that you have in your life where God says, I'm unaware of it or I don't care about it. That just doesn't happen because that's the kind of God that we serve. If that's the case in our relationship with God, should that not also be the case in our relationship with each other? Now, please don't misquote me, because otherwise your shepherds, your local preacher are going to be getting calls all throughout the night. I wanted you to know that I have a toe ache. Preacher said, I need to tell you about my toe ache because preacher said that I've got to communicate all my problems. You'll inundate and burn out everybody. But when you have a real issue, you go to God and pray about it. Why is it that we are reluctant to go to one another and say, you know what? I am struggling physically, emotionally. I'm handicapped in some way. I've got some issue in my life that I need some help with. And we don't want to ask help from one another. And I know the reason why we don't do it. It's two things. Sometimes that's a little bit of pride. And sometimes it's because of that genuine altruistic motive where we say, I don't want to burden someone else with my problems. It reminds me of the parent-child relationship and how apropos being a Father's Day weekend. That parents would rather know about the struggles that their children endure and worry about them rather than not ever know about the struggles that they go through and not worry about them. I remember years ago, I had just gotten into my first year of college and I was worshiping with a small church in West Central Indiana and I ended up going to the emergency room for something that was fairly minor. Well, I didn't know how insurance worked. All I knew is that my dad paid for it. I didn't know how all this stuff was going to transpire. My parents were on vacation celebrating one of their big anniversaries. So I call them up. And I say, I just want you to know that uh, I'm in the hospital and I need some insurance information. Now, if you are a mom, if you're a dad, you say, what did you do? and What's it going to cost me? But if, if you're a mom, you're hysterical. When can I get the first flight? How do we get there as quick as I can go? My son is bleeding to death. I had a small cut on the bottom of my chin, but it needed stitches to preserve this face. <laughs> 
I don't know why that's funny. But the fact of the matter is, is it stressed them, it bothered them. But you know what? They would have rather have known about that than not known about it and endured the stress that goes with it. The same needs to be true with our spiritual family. We as Christians need to openly, honestly communicate about our concerns because this is key to getting along and working together. If we are going to be a congregation that works together, shoulder to shoulder, lockstep with one another, then we have to know about the needs of one another so that we can meet those needs and be truthful with them. Secondly, he says that we need to manage our anger. And I, I am convinced that there are some of you who right now are ready to tune this out. And don't just yet. I, I know why you're wanting to. Because anger is one of those things that you either struggle with it or you don't. There's generally not a middle road. Either you say, I don't have any problem with anger in my life. Now, sometimes you may say that you may be in self-denial. But generally speaking, if you self-reflect, you know whether or not you are an angry person or not. And I've known of Christians who have confessed anger is a big problem for me. I know of one Christian who worshipped with us in California for a number of years who said, I had to go to anger management. I struggled with it so much. And I appreciated the fact that he was willing to open up and say that that was his problem. That that was an issue that he had to deal with. But there are two things that are apparent regarding anger that I think we need to appreciate. One is this. It's possible for a person to be angry and not sin. This is, this is not a sermon about anger or righteous indignation and all of the kinds of good things that go along with this particular discussion where Paul goes back and he quotes from the Psalms. But I point that out simply to say, if we don't get angry from time to time, there's a chance that we might be in sin. For example, when we see sin in the world and it doesn't bother us, it doesn't anger us, it doesn't perturb us, it could be that things aren't the way that they need to be. But the second thing that I think it's important for us to acknowledge is that simply because a person is a Christian doesn't make him immune from the dangers of anger. I wish it were true that when a person comes up out of these waters, that he says, you know what? Everything that I've ever struggled with is a complete memory to me. I, I, I can't even fathom it anymore. I wish it were the case that someone who struggled with alcohol could come out of the waters and say, I never want to drink again. But we know that's not reality. And I wish it were the case that someone who had anger problems could say the same thing. I'll never be angry again. But that's not the way that it works. And instead, we are works in progress, a phrase that was used recently that I thought was very appropriate. We as Christians need to address what it is that makes us angry with one another. Because there are going to be times where you have a disagreement with a brother or a sister in Christ. And it may not rise to the level of I'm angry with sister so-and-so or I'm angry with brother so-and-so. But at the very least, you are upset, you are bothered in some way that it impacts you. We're going to talk a little bit more about communication Sunday morning as we do a fresh look at Matthew chapter 18. So we'll talk a little bit more about that Lord willing Sunday morning. But I would suggest that what we need is a checklist as saints for when dealing with anger toward another Christian. And here's what the checklist would look like. And if you want to copy this down, if you find it helpful, great. If you want the PowerPoint, it's yours uh, for you to look at. But I would call it the anger checklist. And it starts on the left 
by asking this simple question. Am I angry with Brother Smith because Brother Smith has sinned? either against me or against the church, which is also against me, uh, has in some way done something that is wrong. If you are angry with someone else's sin, that's not a bad thing. Now, you certainly don't want to beat the person up. There's certainly something to be said for Colossians chapter 4, that you speak the truth with love and you do so with seasoning your speech with grace. There's a right way of going about correcting someone and there's a... Wrong way of going about correcting someone. But if someone is in sin, what is your responsibility as a Christian? It's pretty simple, isn't it? You address it. You can't ignore it because ignoring it is not a loving action. And so James chapter 5, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, are passages that remind us that when someone is in sin, we need to address it. But let me suggest that the answer to that question is no. Well, secondly, am I angry because of someone's non-sinful act? Well, you can't go to the person and say, you're not sinning, but I think you're sinning. It doesn't work that way. So instead, you have to figure out what you can tolerate and what you can live with. And that's a subject in and of itself. But one of the questions would be is, can I live with it? If so... I should work for peace. But if not, I should address it to do my very best to do so with that seasoning my speech language of Colossians chapter 4, where you massage the problem as best as you can. The reason that I point all this out is he says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil is that if left unchecked, if you are angry about something and you're not addressing it, you're not dealing with it, you're not providing for an opportunity for there to be some sort of resolution, bitterness is going to take over. And we all know where bitterness goes. No place good. It's a one-way ticket in a bad direction. And bitterness is a place where the devil and his power is realized. Thirdly, we need to be engaged in purposeful work in order to be pleasing to God and prevent his sorrow. The fact is, his work was never intended to be a punishment for sin. If you're like me, maybe I'm the only one, or maybe I was uh, misled, or, or maybe I misheard when I was in Bible class as a young child. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve were punished, Adam and Eve had to work. That's inaccurate, right? That's not accurate. Adam and Eve put in the garden, Adam and Eve and told to work, Adam and Eve sinned, the work got a whole lot more difficult and ugly and tiresome. So work is not a punishment. And so we do ourselves a disservice when we teach that notion, especially to kids, oh, you got to work, well, that's what happened, because Adam and Eve did it a few years ago. Well, that's not the way that we should look at it. We work because God created us for the purpose of doing work. And he wants us to engage in purposeful work.
Well, Paul's command to the Ephesians here needs to be seen in light of some first century habits. He says in verse 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give to him who has need. Again, at lunch today, we had a very good conversation about the fact that there's so much in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament combined, about the importance of taking care of those who are needy, of those who are poor, of those who are less fortunate. But I say all that because in the first century, historians have suggested that theft had been rationalized through a Robin Hood-like philosophy or mentality. That there were individuals saying, I don't need to work, I can just steal from those who have more. Because they don't need it as much as I need it. I mean, the guy who's got $10 million is someone who has more than my $10. And as a result, I can take from him. Well, that is not fair. That is not right. That is not spiritually minded. Christ, as we read throughout the entire scripture, was one who helped the poor. And he never did so through dishonest action. So we need to appreciate that particular uh, acknowledgement. The other thing that I want us to acknowledge here before we move on to our fourth and final observation about communication is that God created work to be an integral part of human life. And for us to be reminded of that very important fact, as I mentioned just a moment or so ago, that work is a good thing. It is not designed to be a punishment. So rather than going to our jobs and begrudging the whole fact that we have to work in the first place, let us be thankful to God that he created us for work and that he created us so that we could do good. In fact, in the scriptures, elsewhere, Paul says that we are to work and do good so that we may have something to give to those who are in need. Fourthly and finally, is if we're going to prevent the sorrow of God, if we're going to work hard to please our God, we need to engage in worthwhile communication. I could preach about this for just an hour, just on this one point. Not because I've mastered the topic, but because it is so important. But worthwhile communication in the course of five to eight minutes. What do we get out of it? Well, go back to Ephesians 4, verse 29. It's one of my favorite verses. Uh, memorizing verses is, is good. It's not necessary. You don't, you don't get to heaven where God says, how many verses did you memorize uh, before you get in? This is a verse that I would suggest thinking about memorizing. And the reason for that, I think, will be apparent in just a moment. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth except that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, your version may be a little bit different. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth except that which is good for necessary edification so that it may impart grace to the hearers. If we adopted, and I'm, let, me, let me back up. You know, the first time I heard that verse, uh, that I remembered the verse, I mean, I'm sure I heard it numerous times growing up. Uh, I was supposed to be listening to the sermons. But the first time that I remember it was in a marriage class situation. It was about 20 years ago. I wasn't married. But they asked me for some help. I thought this ought, this ought to be interesting. So I did the best I could with scriptures. And I called up one of my friends. I called up Skip. 
And I said, Skip, can you help me? You've been married for 40 years. You have all the answers, don't you? He says, of course I do. And I called him up as a preacher and as an elder, and I said, can you help me? And he says, one of the things that you need to stress with this couple who are bickering and arguing and fighting with one another is the way they're communicating is not according to Scripture. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth except that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Another way of saying that is if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. For some of us, that means we're not going to be saying much from time to time. And that's okay. Because we are supposed to be people of wholesome communication. In fact, the word corrupt there is the same word as putrid. It's the idea of putrid words coming out of my mouth when I tear you down. That when I tell you how bad you are, when I tell you how wrong you are, I'm not talking about taking you to task for the sinfulness that you've been engaged in, because sometimes that's necessary. After all, one of the jobs of us as Christians, and certainly of those of us who are going to evangelize, is to preach the truth in season and out of season, to convince, to rebuke, and to exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. But the fact is, is when he says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, tells me that we are able to do this. I have to make sure that I govern my tongue. Time fails us to go back and read James chapter 3. But I trust you're familiar with James 3, where he says that it ought not be that good water comes out of a spring that gives bitter water. That makes no sense, James says. We need to use our filters before saying what just entered our minds. Newsflash, just because I think something doesn't mean I have to say something. And the world is filled with people who, for whatever reason, they think, I thought it, I'm going to say it. And as a result, there's a lot of collateral damage. And there are a lot of people that are hurt. My school bus driver, when I was a second or third grader, used to say, whenever we would say, she's picking on me or he's making fun of me, she would always say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That is the biggest, fattest lie in the world. Because words hurt. And sometimes words hurt more than fists. Sometimes the words that someone shares with you or names that they call you, that memory lasts longer than the bruise from a physical altercation. The fact is, is if we are to be engaged in worthwhile communication, we need to avoid the worthless, putrid communication that God says stay away from because it corrupts the speaker, the person who's talking. It corrupts the intended and it corrupts the outsiders because our reputations matter. The fact is, is worthwhile communication is not that we should remain silent all the time, but that we should govern our tongues. And so Paul here is not asking us to be silent. After all, he writes half the New Testament. He is anything but silent. He uses his tongue greatly to preach throughout the book of Acts. We should speak so as to edify. And using the text here in Ephesians chapter 4, the idea of building up, this must also be true even with corrective talk. Again, there's a right way of going about correcting someone and a not-so-right way of going about correcting someone. Let me close with this. 
we should speak, verse 29, so as to impart grace to others. To make it so that when people interact with us, that they are made better for it. I like the King James Version actually a little bit better because it says here that we are to minister grace. And guess who the ministers are in Ephesians chapter 4? It's not the guy that stands up and preaches, although he's important in terms of setting the right example of showing grace. But it's the role of each and every one of us in being men and women who are ministers of grace. It reminds me of the little book that was written a few years ago called The Richest Man on Earth. Some of you may have read it. It's a short read. takes you all of about 20 minutes to read this little book. And it's about a man by the name of Marty. And Marty was a greeter at a little store called Walmart. And Marty was the kind of guy that people would come to Walmart not to shop, but to talk to Marty. Because over the course of year after year after year and decade after decade, Marty had gained this reputation as being one of the kindest, humblest men who just happened to be a greeter at the local Walmart. And the fact is, is people learn to appreciate him and his graciousness. Is there any reason why we can't be like Marty? And then is there any reason why we can't be like Marty and then use that as an opportunity to say, by the way, now that I've got you, can I talk to you about Jesus? By the way, now that we're talking, can I tell you about the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ? It is a group of people that you would love. And by the way, here's an invitation in my pocket for you. And if we do that, every time we have the opportunity to impart or minister that grace, we'll do better than Marty. We'll be more like someone else whose name was Jesus the Christ. Consider, if you would, the effects that this is going to have on every aspect of our lives. Well, there's bad news and good news that I want to close with. The bad news is this. A failure to consider these four things, to thumb your nose at the content of this sermon, not because I delivered it, but because it's from the scriptures, will bring sadness and grief to God. God will say, that displeases me. That bothers me. I do not like that. But the good news is, is if we pay attention to these four things, if we work harder to do all the things that God has asked us to do, truthful communication, managing our anger, purposeful hard work, and then communicating worthwhile, God says that brings joy to me. Each of us get to make that choice. None of us will be forced to doing the right or doing the wrong. We get to make that choice each day that we live. The fact of the matter is, is we are trying to please our God. We're trying to make him excited with the way that we live. And that's the joy that we have tonight to be able to be together as Christians, to encourage each other in that effort. But as we always do when we come together, because there is the opportunity for one who is not a Christian to hear the gospel message, we always share that message and share the invitation that if you are not a Christian, if you've never been baptized to have your sins washed away, 
then you need to make sure that you do so because that will cause grief to God as well. And we, we started tonight by saying we're going to honor our spiritual parent, especially this weekend. We're thinking about our fathers. Let's think about the spiritual father and let's honor him by being obedient to him. And that means being baptized if you've not already done so. Mark 16, 16 says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. That's not my opinion. That's not Church of Christ doctrine. That's not what the Northfield Boulevard elder said you needed to say. That's what the scriptures say. And that's why we preach that. And if you are here and you need to make that confession of faith in Jesus the Christ, or if as a Christian you need to make some sort of correction, we would love the opportunity to pray with you and to pray for you. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing at this time.